Hi there, I'm Doogie Vipond and welcome to Future Fit Farming, a podcast series brought to you by Royal Bank of Scotland. In this episode, we are talking about technology, its current impact on UK agriculture and whether the UK is future fit. Today, I have four experts to discuss that with me. First up, we have Leah Kennedy and Dominic Gannon, founders of the Aquaponics Garden, an aquaponics company technology based in Fife whose vision is to empower local communities and businesses to be self-sufficient whilst preserving the environment through the adoption of the aquaponics garden system. Good to have you with us, guys. Thank Thank you very much. Hi Hi there. Now, we also have Dave Ross, the CEO of the Agri Epicentre, aiming to enable a world where engineering and precision aquaculture technologies, systems and ecosystems are optimised in order to maximise the agri-tech sector's contribution to sustainable food production and supply. Dave, hello there. Hi, Dougie. Hi, everyone. And finally, we also have Tim Byrne, the Managing Director of Abacus Bio International, a consulting business to home to some of the very best scientific minds around. The need to solve problems is at the heart of innovation and competitive advantage in agriculture, and Abacus Bio helps businesses with both. Tim, good to have you with us. Thanks, Dougie. Hi, everybody. I'm going to start with you, Dominic and Leah. How did you get in to the industry in the first place and what kind of support did you get to, to get started? It's a mixture of both of our backgrounds, really. So I'm half Filipino, half Scottish. And growing up in the Philippines, I was exposed to extremes, whether that was social, political, environmental. And from a very young age, I witnessed pristine islands develop so quickly to, to feed the demand of international tourism that... I knew that the direction that we were going in just wasn't right and that there had to be a change. So I thought I'm gonna go and study environmental science and try to get to the root of the problem. I often had a really heavy weight on my shoulders, often coming to Dom and saying, I don't know what, how we can help or what we could do. And so I called him for a cup of coffee one day and I just said, okay, so if there was one world problem that you could help solve, there are so many world problems, what would it be? And because of our love for food, we're always talking about food, always looking to try new types of food. And uh, then we decided on the sustainability of food production. It's, it's a really big problem. And I said, there's technology to solve the problems of the sustainability of production, right? But why is it that we're not using the technology more? Why is it not more available to people? And I don't know when it went from that to consuming us and it's our whole lives now it's sort of just it, we, we just went on this way and um and we're here now the support that we've had is incredible honestly i i'm we are so lucky to to have um the support we do our families have been extremely supportive as well and um we actually received our first investment from rock spring who are dominic's family investment company who invest in disruptive startup technology and that allowed us to build our pilot system and it also allowed us to uh, hire our employees and build our team. So uh, our pilot system is based on SRUC Elmwood's campus. We've had incredible support from them as well, from their students volunteering at our facility to advice as well as their agronomists uh, introducing us to local farmers. 
other than that, winning winning the Converge Challenge last year, the Impact Challenge, um, was was a turning point for the business. We've received a lot of business support as well as our team has grown in terms of our advisors. We were approached by different people. Winning the Alison Rose Award at the same time was a turning point for me personally. From that, I had invaluable conversations and really motivational conversations with women from RBS as well as NatWest, including Susan Fouquier, uh, Paula Ritchie, Melinda O'Reilly, and even Alison Rose. And uh, we, we discussed, you know, being a female working in a male-dominated environment, and we shared stories in that space. And she reminded me to always just remember to be myself, and it was really great. So from these conversations a lot has changed in the business and we've we've pushed ourselves to where we are now so the support has been amazing and we're really really grateful for where we are now and and dominic your um start point of, of with this sort of you know leah came to you and, and spoke to you about this was you come of you know coming from the same mindset in terms of setting up um your own company that's uh it's a very interesting question uh i think there were similar mindsets but um, my background in investment meant that I was kind of looking for a way into a career in, in investment. But at the time, I, I felt uh, I felt untrusted of the, the markets and, and how pricing was made. So I kind of shifted my focus towards sort of sustainable technologies. And I really wanted to find a, te a sustainable technology that I could make into a, a big company and be profitable, but sustainable at the same time. So when Leah came to me with this and we kind of started talking about it, I was doing a master's in entrepreneurship, innovation and management. And I just uh, sold a, a private business that I'd set up with, with five of my friends. So I was kind of looking for the next opportunity. And when we talked about this, it just seemed obvious. It was sort of four years ago when before the massive kind of growth in, in appetite and vertical farming. Um, and it just seemed like somebody needed to focus hard on developing technology that everybody could use. And that was one of Lair's main points initially was, if we're gonna get into this, we need to develop a technology that's gonna grow food that everybody can purchase. And in my head, obviously, I was like, I, I don't know how that's gonna, gonna work. You know, most of vertical farming companies make, you know, have serious margins on the microgreens and the leafy greens and, and high value things for restaurants. And it's a daunting task, I think, to, to develop a technology that can produce something at a, at a cost that everybody can afford. But that's the overall all challenge. And, you know, we've got a long way to go, but we're, we're focused on getting there. Um, so you know, I hope that's answered the question. It certainly has. And Dave, let's talk a bit about you, because, you, you know, you used to be involved in academia and now you're kind of on the other side and kind of be more business focused. How did you know, that kind of it in the first place. And how did you get, you know, in your kind of build your relationship with the, the aquaponics garden? So, Dougie, going back my career history, um, it's slightly longer than the two previous contributors. So I'll, I'll try and cut to the chase a little bit. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my previous academic experience really was focused on uh, the both the high value crop, the crop and, it, and laterally for the past sort of dozen years or so focused on livestock. And it was really focused on technology improvements, things that the industry could use, but developing from an academic perspective to try and work and develop these new tools and technologies and deliver on wearing an academic hat, but working very closely with industry. And I found personally the, the, the excitement and the, 
the passion of getting something successfully deployed in industry was was a bit of a drug for me. And uh, so that that led me to the, the path, the career path that I find myself on now. Um, nothing, no, nothing's ever planned in life, but this one, this one had an element of planning in it. So the, uh, the opportunity came about in sort of 2015 or so for um, a UK government sponsored initiative to create agricultural or agri-tech or agri-food centres of innovation. And eventually, the, um, after a sort of down selection process, they focused on four areas. One was focused on livestock particularly, one was focused on crops and all the challenges around crop protection products, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one was focused on what's called big data which is the advent of the big data scenario, especially to the agri-food supply chain. And the one that's left is the one that I, the one I liked was focused on particularly the technology, the engineering, the precision technologies that could be deployed on farm. And so I, I grasped what, what, what then, then was a very large nettle and um, started my journey in trying to create this, uh, this business or develop this business from a standing start in about mid 2016. And uh, the there was an element, there still is an element of government co-support in this, but the function that we now provide in my new world, wearing a more industrial hat, is effectively more a facilitator and an enabler for industry and academia to work more closely together. And what that means from a practical standpoint is to identify what the industrial problems are in the food sector, right through the food sector from agri right through to retail try and then map that and get the appropriate expertise or capacity within the UK or even abroad to try and deliver on a solution for that. And um, that's the kind of role that we've established and maintained and delivered projects on ever since. So um, from that humble beginnings, we're now at, I think about 175-ish industrial members ranging from companies like Amazon, which is our, one of our members, down to the likes of equivalent companies like Aquaponics Garden, very, very small startups in the start of their journey to create some commercial success and find some niche or a growth, growth element in the, in the food sector. So that's where we sit. And um, just as a few examples for people, just to get, get, get some color into this, we, we facilitate and engage in a number of projects, some very simple projects. And one came to mind, um, uh, recently, which is we, a young entrepreneur wanted to um, make it easier for established farming businesses to read analog instrumentation that was legacy 30, 40 years old on their farms and climbing up, climbing up ladders or hiding, getting into dust filled crevices, etc, etc, to read something and find out what the grain moisture was or whatever was, was quite difficult. So he uh, created a new product which actually clips on, measures it and sends it automatically to a mobile phone and we helped that young entrepreneur do that and that's a relatively simple but very practical, very useful for the industry um, example. Now you can go to the complex where we're working with um, um, robotic systems in dairies where lots of lots of data is coming together and we aggregate that to try and provide the best information for the farmer to understand and at an individual animal level make the best management decisions on. So we've got quite a diverse um, portfolio, shall I call it. And the way in which we do some of this work is a lot of the resources that we've 
put in place across the UK and beyond. So we've got about 25 farms in the UK that we work intensively with, um, early adopters and pioneers. And we also have our own facilities and um, we have incubation for companies, we have food testing laboratories, we actually have um, aquaculture facilities that um, we're, we're, we're going to be opening soon, which is a nice tie back to um, aquaponics garden. And again, this is all relating to understanding the problems and the issues that they have, trying to get the solutions in place that make their businesses sustainable, but also deliver to the farming sector to make their businesses more sustainable as well. So we're still on a journey. There's still lots of challenges, new challenges emerging, and we're, we're just we're occupying that space at present. It's starting to work both nationally and actually internationally now. We've got good links with South America, China, and would you believe it, New Zealand. And brings me on very nicely to Tim then. Uh, so Tim, you're in a kind of slightly similar position to Dave in that your company sort of brings minds together, you know, the innovators and the people on the side of technology, and you're kind of bringing them together with agriculture businesses. So how do you think is the best way you know, for, for both of them to develop and, and to move forward. Uh, thanks, Doogie. Uh, when I reflect on what um, what Dom and Dave have said, uh, like uh, there's a couple of things there that really resonate with me, and it's it's those things that Abacus used to help companies innovate. I think the first is that um, there needs to be a clear demonstration of the value proposition for innovation. So. Um, economic is obvious, you know, the economic value proposition is obvious, but increasingly so environmental, social and other propositions that need to be demonstrated clearly to, to the businesses that are expected to do this innovation. Um, so I, I think we can't forget that. Something that Dave pointed to, which I think is relevant in um, enabling business, businesses to innovate is to translates kind of the complexity that is often seen in innovation and, and make that into effective solutions that are simple enough um, to work in, in a complex business environment. Um, there's lots of examples of innovation sitting on the shelf because it's too complex or too difficult to implement in a real business environment, or maybe it hasn't been communicated effectively as it can be. So generating, you know, some simplicity in the solution so that it actually works in a complex business environment, I think is really important. Uh, and then finally, and probably most importantly, is about really listening to the needs of businesses. And it sounds a little bit cliche, but I guess identifying problems first and then finding a solution rather than having a solution and then going to look for something to solve with it. So there's some examples of that as well. The first one that comes to mind for me is drones. Like there was a big wave of enthusiasm for drones. I mean, often it was a drone looking for a problem to solve rather than the other way around. So um, I think that's really important. And Another thing worth mentioning, I think, is, is about risk. Agriculture is, is usually quite a tight margin business. And unlike a lot of other industries, there's only about 30 opportunities, right? There's 30 seasons, if you like, um, for a farmer or an agribusiness to get, to get it right. So there's quite a big risk in, in giving away one of those seasons. You give away the year's worth of, of profit if you get it wrong. So... I think businesses like Abacus Bio and other advisory businesses, including Dave's, for example, can do a lot to, to support the management of risk 
uh, through the innovation pipeline. Thank you very much indeed, Tim. Now, uh, Leigh, I want to speak to you again about, you know, technology then. So what kind of technologies in your market that the Aquaponics Garden are now using and developing? Because as Dave and uh, Tim both said, you know, it, it, there's a lot out there, isn't there? So what, what, what kind of technology are you using within your specific type of aquaculture? Thank you, Dave. Aquaponics, I beg your pardon, it's the wrong word, no, sorry. No, no. It, well, it's an it's a, it's a important component of it. Um, the tech side is really, um, is more what Dom is focused on. So I'm going to let him talk about it, but we use a mixture of IoT and sensors. But what Tim was talking about earlier, I think that we, you know, we resonate with a lot of what you were saying in terms of, you know, not developing a solution that doesn't have a problem yet. You know, that was a key um, focus of ours at the beginning, instead of just having a solution and then, and then uh, saying everybody buy the solution, we're trying to dig deeper into, you know, what do farmers need or what do businesses really need? How can this solution fit? And then the second thing is also what you're talking about, the sim simplicity of the innovation that we really resonate with as well, because adoptability of a system is really important. So if you have technology that can't be used, then it, it goes nowhere. So one thing that we're really focusing on is making it easily adoptable, but we're doing that in a number of ways and, and yeah, don't, don't elaborate more. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Developing uh, technology that has a real commercial and immediate commercial purpose is, is, is our game. That's what we're trying to do is build a, a system that we can directly put into the food production supply chain and reduce that that um, uncertainty of margin as well, because if we can reduce the, the length of the supply chain, then we can improve margins. So there's the economic side. There's a massive sustainability side to this as well. Um, but in terms of the technology, it's got a vital role to play in enabling the aquaponics garden to develop a crop production system that can be easily adopted, as Lair says, monitored both at the facility site, but also remotely and scaled. A lot of our startup journey has been, you know, sleepless nights thinking about the amount of water that's flowing around the facility and, and all the problems that might occur. And, you know, stopping Sunday lunch because we need to go in because we've seen that there's, a, there's an issue. You know, these are all the things that we don't want our customers to have to experience. So we're, you know, overcoming those bit by bit. I was really lucky to be one of the first people to see the first ever Raspberry Pi which is one of Britain's most successful selling computers now. Um, and that has really shaped the way that I think about technology and the adoptability of technology and also how you can see everything that's happening and the ability to repair things if, if small problems happen. Um, so as a result, we've, we've you know, adopted and slightly adapted mostly off the shelf technologies such as you know, internet of things, sensors, microcontrollers and computers to build a system that can communicate with its operators, enabling the operator to then make critical decisions through a dashboard. Because that's the key thing. I want to see if something's wrong. If nothing's wrong, then, then let's just leave all the lights green and be happy with our Sunday lunch, right? So um, <laughs> the key for us is, is to develop a system that despite having many, many layers of complexity, which I'm sure <laughs> Dave can, can appreciate, um, we want to be able to enable it to be used by high-level scientists, but also entry-level technicians, so that everybody can find a use for it, not just the top-level sort of data processing side. 
Um, but in amongst that ch challenge is then developing it in a sustainable but cost-effective way. You know, this needs to be low cost for everybody to adopt. So we're about to embark on a major round of fundraising to fund the next iteration of the aquaponics garden, the, the Mark II, um, with the aim of then getting our first product to market in 18 to 24 months, which is a massive challenge. But we have a library of, of development projects that we need to get cracking on with, that we need funding with. Um, and it's all about enabling the adoption of the, the system through the innovation, through the technology. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense. It does. Absolutely. I want to ask both of you before I open it out to Dave and Tim as well. You know, you say you mentioned off the shelf technology, but, you know, technology is an ever changing world as, as well, you know, and it moves very, very fast indeed. How do you go about choosing what off the shelf um, products that you're going to use to develop for the for the fact you for your final sort of um, uh, product? It starts with 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 trying. So we have a bit of a fail fast attitude at the Aquaponics Garden. So we'll we'll try something. If it fails, we'll try to uh, adapt it or, or, or bring a new piece of hardware in. Um, we're also really lucky in that we we work with some really bright um, sort of hardware and software engineers um, from a couple of different companies. One of them being Census, and one of them being MBS three six five and They've been in the IoT hardware space already for the past sort of four or five years. So they are able to kind of quickly look at what the appropriate hardware is, but then we look at it and we see whether it will fit in the context of, of aquaponics farming. It's, it's about finding the balance between cost and quality. You know, you don't want to get something that's too cheap that's, that you're going to have to replace so many times, but you also don't want to spend so much and, you know, for some things, buying lots of cheap things to get a, a range of data is better than getting one really expensive thing and having one data point, for example. It's a balance uh, and it's, and yeah, exactly, fail fast. We just try it, see if it works. If it doesn't, try again, just keep going. And, and Leah, for you as well, of course, the, the, there's the added layer of making sure that you know anything you're taking on board is not causing you know the environment any issues as well so you're adding that extra layer of, of challenge for the right reasons into into your product it's a really crucial part and um it is it's probably the hardest part because you know materials are not sustainable i mean just in general us living here on earth you know everything we do is has an impact so you that again you have to strike the balance and what we try to do a lot is repair so instead of chucking something out taking it apart seeing if it can still be used or taking pieces that can still be used and um and also trying to look source locally as much as possible um so it, it it's a difficult balance and we hope that in the future we can reach a, a position where the system as a whole is, is sustainable, not just it's, it's running, but also the materials that we use. We want to go beyond the, the, the standard things that we say about the sort of vertical farming, that sort of 95% less water use and the rest of it, because ultimately, Leia came up with this idea, which was a holistically sustainable food production system. And that looks at the materials, that looks at the inputs, that looks at everything. So when you think about it in that context, you know, we're on a very long journey, you know, we're not going to get there in the next couple of years. But um, you talking about that sustainability thing made me think about something uh, that, that Dave was, was talking about. And I wondered whether you could weigh in, Dave, on how your conversations about sustainability with businesses, but also farmers are received. 
and whether generally it's a positive conversation that you have or whether you get resistance because we definitely find both ends of, of the spectrum where you get positive responses and negative responses and we want to build a, a, a company that works for the benefit of the farmer and we don't want to talk about sustainability in a way that sort of puts them down mm -hmm. um, what we're just trying to do is, is help them reach targets that governments are, are setting to hit uh, you know net zero by 2040 which is a massive challenge and how are they going to be able to do that without adopting profitable technologies that can make sure that they're still you know earning their good living uh, that's a very very big topic and I, I i personally from my experience commend you both for looking at the holistic view of your system because i think that that's going to be one of the things in future that we're going to have to take into account for all agricultural production we've gone through the what's called the green revolution in you know in the 60s etc where we've focused we've gone through monocultivation we've gone through high inputs we've gone through advanced chemistries um and there have been one or two casualties along the way which is you know obviously things like biodiversity um concentration of the genetics into smaller pools of productive capacity both in crops and livestock and one one of the other things um which in the new challenges that we have both in biodiversity and net zero is to look i think more holistically at the, at the food production process where the nutrient flows need to work for all and you know the challenge is always to get the most efficient nutrients flowing we have challenges for nutrition in plants across the, the world in, in the uk it's getting slightly better but in some instances there's an over application of nitrogen into crop production, which is then has a knock-on effect, both on the environment in, in, in the, water, the water streams, et cetera, but also has a knock-on effect on climate change. And therefore, that looking at holistically in the nutrient flows and making most use of efficient nutrient flows, whether it be in a contained system that you've developed, but also in broad acre and traditional, what I'd call outdoor, in inverted commas, agriculture, Looking at it more holistically, I think is something that we will need to pivot to a degree in future to meet all these parallel challenges that agriculture has got to meet. There's a people keep talking about a perfect storm coming of food production, net zero, um, etc., and that's coming upon us, and we're seeing it through policy initiatives, COP26 coming. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the food supply chain, and let's face it. The agri-food or the ag bit of the food production system is a globally about 24% of the greenhouse gas emissions pie chart. So it's 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 higher than automotive and aerospace, etc. So it's a big chunk that we're responsible for. So the environmental push and the holistic approach, I think, is great. I'm not sure if that's answered your question correctly, Dominic, but it's my best take on it. Uh, I like answer. to really yeah. good answers, lots of nodding heads. So yeah, it sounds like we're we're of the same mind, which is encouraging. Good stuff. Now, Tim, I want to talk to you about you know obviously keeping in mind this you know the, the fact that you know the you know the the impact on the environment long term is going to be something that's high in our mind for a long long time as it should be. But how can we kind of um, you know, get farmers and people who are, you know, producing food, um, how can we encourage them to take on technologies? Because let's face it, the future is going to be ever-changing. And do you find that when you're speaking to people who are actually producing food, that they're open-minded to technology? Or are they kind of more like, oh, we've been doing it this way for a long time, so we're actually doing fine, thanks very much. 
when I reflect on the sort of situation farmers are in, um, they have to walk a very fine line, right, between their livelihood, which is about making money, and also preservation of the environment and contribution to public good and things like that. And I think for them, it's getting increasingly hard to walk that line. So farmers need support to, to manage that. And if, I, if you then overlay sort of technology and innovation on top of that fine line, that is another level of complexity for them. And farmers are throwing all sorts of things, lots of different opportunities. And it's actually quite difficult for them to navigate what they should adopt, what the risk profile of each is and what it means in the long term, especially in the context of, you know, a policy framework, which is also changing. So how can we help farmers navigate that? We have to uh, work closely with them to understand their businesses, I think. And I reflect back again on the sort of the risk profile of farmers. Um, Dave mentioned a, a restructuring of the whole food supply chain. So that's very disruptive, right? That is a massive change from what, what farming is now. So supporting farmers and making decisions about what technology to use is important. Uh, simplifying things as much as possible. I say that not reflecting on what farmers can cope with. I just say that reflecting on how complex their business already is and what they're going to need to, to navigate, you know, that, that tightrope between economic and environmental and social bottom line. And has, you know, is there an open mind there, do you think, generally for the people that, you, you know, you've been speaking to? I guess if they're speaking to you, they are really open-minded to technology. But do you think that, you know, across the industry, they are open-minded to change and positive change? I think certainly, like like in any industry, there's a uh, there's a range of views. Like Dom referred to the spectrum of views about the need to change, and I think one thing that will help a lot is is, a, is succession in the farming business. I'm sure everybody on this call has heard that had a conversation about that before. Young minds with new ideas and new ways of doing things need to come into agriculture. And it's probably a little bit slow now. It's probably a little bit slow now to, to create behavior change because ultimately this is about behavior change. Younger people with new ideas, I think, will help fast track that behavior change. Absolutely. And let's talk to young, younger people then, Dominic and, and Leah. The Agriculture and Horticultural Development Board lists minimizing costs uh, was one of the key factors uh, that differentiated. Um, I'll ask that again because that was complete nonsense. So let's talk to some younger people, uh, Dominic and Leah, and the Agriculture and Horticultural Development Board list minimizing costs as one of the key factors. So does technology help with that? Definitely. Um, when it comes to minimizing costs, the key is to know all the areas where you're spending. And I have spoken with various businesses that all struggle with keeping a track of every cost that you know you have because sometimes it's not as simple as a cost that is in the form of a receipt that goes into a folder and uh you know we're at the moment we we do we, we're running a, a trial uh, in conjunction with you know some farmers um and in order for us to properly analyze whether our technology is performing better than theirs we need to understand all of their costs but at the moment the technology is not there uh, for all farmers to understand what all their costs are, you know, let alone, you know, charging their time when they're working, you know, 20 hour days uh, sometimes, you know, that, that's not 
that's not captured uh, by, by all businesses. So being able to capture the real costs of a business is essential so that we can enable the process of minimizing the costs where you can. So technology can play a, a vital role in recording all of that data uh, in order to build that real picture. And it's, you know, easy sometimes to put that extra shift in where it's needed, um, but you've got to put a value to that so that we can truly understand how much it's cost to, to produce a certain crop. Um, and spending data also can be used to, to see, you know, what your environmental footprint is. Um, so you can see, you know, where you've been buying your things from uh, and you can see, you know, very quickly, um, for example, for a, for a startup buying cheap things using services like Amazon, you know, very quickly you can find that you're spending cheap, but the environmental footprint is expensive. So you really need to use, you know, the correct online, you know, technologies and software to enable you to look at the overall picture. And we, that's definitely been something that we've sort of focused on from the start is what is the, the true cost of what we're doing? Um, and how can we improve the data capture from the you know, participants and the partners that we have in order to make a true comparison? Because at the moment, it's, it's definitely not, not a fair representation when you go onto the databases uh, uh, and the other areas where you can get those costs. And also the most, well, the, the biggest cost for any business really is, is people. And the, the most expensive thing is, is time. You, you know, it, it's, we can never get it back. So, you know, using technology in certain areas where needed can help you save time and save your team's time as well. So small tasks that are redundant, that, that you can make redundant or rep repetitive tasks. And using technology to help you in those areas it is really useful, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that you have to make everything automized. So you can you pick and choose where where it's where it's needed and where it would save the most time, and that will add value as well as bring down costs. It's a very good point. We're we're definitely looking to develop a system that's going to employ people um, because you know at the end of the day, innovation also comes from people, and you know. Without those people, you can't do that, you know, innovation and creative thinking. And so it's yeah. a really great point you've made. So having having a system that is 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 easy is easy to use, but it's still creating jobs, you know. So that that feeds back into into the economy, but it also means that uh, the job isn't too difficult. We use technology to help out um, as much as we can. Yeah. Now, Dave, that report also says that you know, a mindset for change is also key for growth. I know Tim has touched on this, but give us your thoughts and, and say, you know, how easy do you think that is, you know, to have that mindset for change um, for farmers? Okay, um, so a, a number of different um, slants on that argument, Dougie. I think the, the key, and Tim's mentioned this, this, I quite like the, the analogy, which is this tightrope, this dividing line of, of, of competing um, shall we say, needs in the rural landscape and agriculture and food. And, and I agree, farmers do tread that, that line and it's getting increasingly difficult. And now what, what, in my view, is likely to encourage change is the kind of incentivization schemes that might appear in the coming years to try and get uh, both 
the what we call the public goods, the environmental goods that you would want to see out of the rural landscape, but integrated with a more sustainable and profitable food production supply in the UK. There's, there's obviously an, a kind of elephant in the room um, globally when we are, we are constantly reminded that the food production capacity of the planet will need to increase by 50 to 70% over the next 20, 20 something years. Now, that's obviously going to apply pressure, planetary pressure on, on food production, but from a kind of almost a UK context, the, I do see the mindset of farmers being encouraged through policy mechanisms, through, um, I think, you know, harsh economics um, in terms of the CAP, which is now defunct for the UK in its, in its previous form, will actually taper away um, as a financial um, uh, support mechanism in its, in its prior format. And obviously other support mechanisms may come into play, but I think a lot of these support mechanisms will be looking to create that kind of change. So these are the encouragement mechanisms. As far as the mindset of the farming population is concerned, we, as I say, we work with the kind of pioneer farmers that we hope we consider them to be the top end. They like being called the top end. Uh, uh, but they, we work with what, what we perceive them to be, and they're kind of the early adopters, the people that are willing to try stuff that might fail. Yeah, and they'll tell you very quickly. By golly, they tell me quite quickly <laughs> if stuff is, is is not cutting the mustard. But uh, but that's the process of innovation. You've got to go through that cycle and that loop. You fail fast, as Dominic, uh, you know, as said. So that's the way we're trying to get um, in our in our own world trying to encourage and diffuse those those learnings across the agricultural population the other thing which i think maybe i can't remember it was tim mentioned was the the, the age profile as well which is working against us a bit and obviously recently the announcements of defra considering um, retirement schemes for farmers to allow perhaps a more easy entry in for new generations to come in and I think the job function of that new generation might actually migrate a little bit as well. As we develop more capacities and our skills need into these new technologies, a, far, a traditional farmer skill set might need to be augmented by someone who understands, let's say, data or you know, analytics or something like that in terms of productivity. And um, we're starting to see this in, like, for example, the dairy sector where someone comes in who's you know, the dairy manager will have to have an additional skill set focused on the data analytics capacity, whereas 20 years ago, that would have been unheard of in the job description. So there are transients, and I think I think we're on a journey now, and I think we're definitely on a journey now. Um, Tim will have obviously some reflections, I would think, on how New Zealand did that a few a few decades ago. But in the UK, there is a transient, I think, and we're at, we're at the start point at present of that transient. Okay, Dave, thank you for the moment. But finally, I'm going to finish with this because we're, we're, this is called Future Fit Farming. So is UK agriculture fit for the future? And if it isn't, uh, what does it have to do? So I want to ask that question of all of you and Tim might reflect on the New Zealand situation at the end as well. But um, Leah, I'm going to come to you first of all. Is agriculture in the UK fit for the future? And if it isn't, what do you reckon it has to do? I would say in many ways, yes but also in many ways no so in the uk uh, we have world-class agricultural practices you know we're leading in a lot of different 
parts of the sector. But I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done and there are a lot of challenges that we have to overcome if we want to reach the 2040 net zero targets for England and Wales and 2045 for Scotland. But um, I think that the key is really collaboration and education. So coming together, uh, using innovation and really being able to deploy it and also educating people on you know, new technologies to reduce the risk or the perceived risk of some of the technologies and also the support. You know, we talked about how farmers are treading that fine line and we really want to make sure that we develop technology that works alongside farmers and, and it works with them and not against them because they have a really hard job, uh, you know, feeding our um, population. And so, uh, providing more support for them really, I think is, is key and, and yeah, education collaboration, but. Okay, Dominic, same, the same question to you, the big question to you too, please. Um, it's a really good question. When I, when I think about this, I think about our imports and exports situation in the UK and what, you know, the supply chain truly looks like. And it's not good. We don't, we don't produce as much food that, that, that we need to, um, you know, nationally. So in times of crisis, in, you know, when we're thinking about the future, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about population growth, but we're also thinking about climate change and we're thinking about, you know, uncertainties through pandemics as well. So when we think about this question, we've got to look at how we responded during, you know, Brexit and we've responded during COVID. And for the people that, you know, are at the end of the supply chain, it's been really difficult. You know, the UK is an island that has remote communities Obviously, we've got massive cities like London that are part of this worldwide international supply chain. But, you know, for, for our, our you know, people that are living on, on the outskirts and, and at the end of the supply chain in the countryside, it's difficult for them to access that nutritious, you know, uh, food at a good price as well. So I'd say, you know, the UK agriculture is, is not quite fit for the future yet. But through, you know, you know, what Dave was saying in terms of support through governmental policies and also the, the epicenters that, that Dave is part of, they have a massive role to play in ensuring that, you know, the, the agriculture, agricultural sector and the people that are developing the technology for the sector are working closely enough so that when that development happens, it can be incorporated straight into the supply chain immediately rather than having to wait 10 or 20 years. You know, when I think about achieving net zero for agriculture in 2040, I think that's a long way away. We need to work quicker than that, I think. Absolutely. Dave, what, same question to you then. The, the big one about uh, is the UK agriculture fit for the future or indeed does it have to change? I think it has to change. And I think that I would suggest it's possibly evolutionary rather than revolutionary, or perhaps a combination of both. There are some revolutionary elements of which, I, you know, the aquaponics space is, a, is I would consider a more revolutionary aspect. Um, but for the other components of agriculture, there are pressures. It, it's an incredibly complex landscape with different commodities having different pressures. I cite an example, such as the obviously the labour supply that we've had as a consequence of Brexit. And that tightening of labour supply has made it more difficult for certain commodities to be picked, harvested, monitored, etc. in our high value sector. And are there technological solutions to that? Yes, there are, but they're probably a few years away from being robust and reliable enough to be deployed. But if they are deployed, 
does that create a, a robust indigenous economy producing those commodities better balancing our payments in terms of you know food security for the uk the answer is yes to all of these things if it all works right and we adopt the technology and we have the right players and actors in all of the supply chain to produce that product to make it happen so it's a challenge um it's a challenge that we're on a journey on again uh, but agriculture over the years has had to change many times it's had to adapt to new circumstances and it has had to develop so i i'm positive for the future i think there will be adaptation i think new minds will come in they'll look at it from a fundamental perspective the revolutionists as i would call them and the evolutionists will look at how they can do things better um, tapering off, you know, increasing something by 1% in terms of productivity generally is a win-win with net zero. You, you tend to get a, not 1%, but close to 1% gain there. And anything that we can do just now over the crucial next 10 to 12 years in terms of net zero is something that we can really put in the bank for 2040 and 2050 where we've really got to hard hit and get there. So um, I, I think we're lots of things to do I think there's some changes to happen. There's challenges across the dividing line of environmental management, land management for public goods, which will be a necessary component of this, including a necessary component for both biodiversity and net zero. But we still have to have a productive landscape and we still have to have an element of food security. I look to countries or territories like, for example, Singapore, which had a policy up until the pandemic, the policy was very much import most, if not all of its food. That pivoted 180 degrees a few weeks into the pandemic. And now they're gung-ho about food security to get up to 30% by, I think it's 2030. So food security is going up the agenda post-pandemic, it absolutely is. And I think there's an opportunity for the UK to grow more product where I mean um, I'm frustrated slightly by our partners in Netherlands where they're the you know the world's second biggest exporter uh, for the size of territory and our landscape and our territory across you know Scotland and England um, we can compete and can we have that large production capacity in the UK with the ambition and all the actors and this enthusiasm of farmers etc to grab that opportunity in a tight commodity price world, I will grant you that, can, they, can we have that investment to create that wonderful, what I call panacea of locally grown produce, which I think is wonderful. I'll finish on that. We all think that's wonderful. Absolutely, we do. But uh, Tim, I'll ask the same question to you to, to finish off. Is UK agriculture fit for the future? And if not, what needs to be done? I think uh, my response sort of mirrors Leah's response in that, in a way, it is fit for the future. It, it's got a good track record in providing for the environment and other public goods. I think the policy that's been in place in the UK compared to New Zealand, for example, has meant that the UK has probably done a better job than New Zealand at protecting the environment. It's fit for purpose in terms of health and welfare and traceability standards, certainly, and that it has to be maintained because that's um, an increasing expectation from consumers. So it's certainly fit for purpose on on that front, but there are some fundamental challenges with it, I think. Um, and they are things like, for example, farm scale. The, the expectation globally is that food should be cheap. Um, 
and it's quite hard to produce cheap food off small areas of land. So there's some structural um, challenges to overcome to, to move to move the industry forward. It's true in New Zealand as well, but I think it's even more true here. And it's about balancing the expectations of rural and urban communities in order for the UK farming industry to become more fit for the future, I think heaps of support and, and communication around balancing those expectations of rural and urban communities will help. Uh, but I'm like everybody else here, I'm super positive. I think the, the direction of travel is right um, in terms of restructuring the way farmers are rewarded for maintaining the environment and protecting public good. Um, and yeah, there's heaps of technology out there and I think supporting the industry and farmers and implementing the right technologies at the right time will, will take the UK forward. Tim, thank you very much indeed. And thanks also to all the guests on Future Fit Farming brought to you by the Royal Bank of Scotland. In the next episode, I have three experts talking about the future of cooperative farming in the UK. If you want any more information on agriculture, go to the Royal Bank Business Hub slash agriculture. <laughs>